Reforming our criminal justice system is long overdue. From the war on drugs to police misconduct to the nearly unchecked power of prosecutors, there are several avenues of attack. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. We'll talk today about how best to fix our criminal justice system and take your questions next. Thank you for joining us for this, our fifth edition of the 2017 Cato Sponsor e-briefing series. I'm Caleb Brown, Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and throughout this year, we have been and will continue to center these briefings on uh, Cato's history, Cato's legacy, and uh, look back on what the Institute has accomplished, examine the present, and look forward to discussing advancing our vision of a free society over the next 40 years. I'd also like to invite you all to visit our 40th anniversary webpage, which is linked below. We have lots of resources, such as a timeline of Cato's history and testimonials from policymakers, journalists, and leaders in the liberty movement. We've also commissioned a series of special essays examining the future of a free society. Today, we are talking with Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. You can read more about Clark and his uh, background at uh, his bio page at Cato.org, but we're going to get right into the questions here today. And I want to remind you that this conversation is driven by your questions. Uh, you put it into the chat box below the video here, and we'll try to get to as many of those questions over the course of the next half hour. Uh, and thanks to those of you who submitted questions ahead of time. You can uh, send any uh, thoughts or other questions to Harrison Moore, Cato's Director of Development. Uh, any any questions ahead during this e-briefing, e uh, even after we wrap up uh, this e-briefing as well. Uh, his email address is hmoar, H-M-O-A-R, at cato.org. So, Clark, welcome. Thank you. Um, let's begin this. You joined uh, Cato earlier this year, and one of the, the projects that you have tasked yourself with is sort of uh, rethinking how Cato approaches uh, criminal justice issues and what ought to be higher versus lower priority. What the what the what the cheap wins are. What the, what the big wins are. What the, you know the things that we need to uh, dig in to achieve. So, uh, how do you think about that at this point? Uh, now that you've been here a while. Well, thanks for having me here today, Caleb, and thanks to all the Cato sponsors for joining us, and really thank you for their support. Um, you know, I, I came over to Cato to work on criminal justice in large measure because uh, when I was at the Institute for Justice before, um, I started working on civil forfeiture cases. And we'll talk more later about what civil forfeiture is. But it's essentially um, a power the government has to take property by simply alleging that it was involved in some crime without actually proving it. And what I saw when I worked on these civil forfeiture cases was um, – a cavalier approach on the part of the government, um, a, a lack of fair procedures, a lack of fairness in general. And I began to ask myself, wow, if it's this bad when they're taking somebody's property, are they at least a lot more careful when it comes to locking people up? And it began to haunt me, the idea that maybe they aren't a lot more careful. And frankly, that's the conclusion that I've come to. So when I came over to Cato to work on criminal justice, what I, what I decided was that what I think is, is really important for Cato as, a, as, as, a principled, as the principled libertarian think tank um, is to get at the heart of the issue, figure out what are the most fundamental problems with our criminal justice system, and then of those problems, which ones seem most amenable to a specifically libertarian critique 
and solution. And so the first thing I did when I got over here to Cato was to commission a kind of an informal survey of experts. Um, I'd been reading a lot about criminal justice issues. I knew a, not a large number of people in that area and of course um, some of my fellow teammates here at Cato who are on our criminal justice project also know people. So we reached out to about three dozen experts, criminal defense attorneys, law professors, activists and others. And we asked them two very simple questions. First, what do you think are the one or two most fundamental shortcomings or problems in our criminal justice system? And second, if somebody gave you a magic wand and said you may use this magic wand to add or subtract one policy and only one from our criminal justice system, what would it be? And we began to compile those results looking for two things. First, to see if um, people from all different backgrounds were responding um, in similar ways on similar issues. In other words, identifying similar problems. And second, to make sure we weren't missing anything that might not be on our radar screen. And so that has shaken out. I'm in the process of putting the finishing touches on a strategic blueprint. I think we have a pretty good idea of what issues we're going to be tackling as we move forward. Okay. So uh, when we think of the people who are involved in the criminal justice system, uh, the, the things that immediately come to mind, police, right. prosecutors, judges, juries, and defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the roles performed by each of these, where's the, where's the one that jumps out as being the most uh, problematic or one that might be the easiest to repair? Well, perhaps the most important thing anybody can know about our criminal justice system is that it is run by and for prosecutors. Um, judges have almost no involvement and citizens have almost no involvement. Judges really just function, um, their main role in our criminal justice system is imposing punishment on people who have pled guilty because that's what most, uh, that's how most criminal convictions are obtained uh, today. And citizens um, who are supposed to have tremendous involvement in the criminal justice system. In fact, um, our whole criminal justice system was designed around the concept of the citizen jury, the criminal jury. We've essentially eliminated the criminal jury from our system. And so citizens really have almost no participation. It's mostly that our criminal justice system um, is uh, primarily the domain of police officers and prosecutors. Judges and citizens have almost no role. So um, with respect to prosecutors, is this a recent de development in terms of the, the powers that prosecutors claim and the powers that they've assumed and the powers that they're generously given by legislatures. Right. Um, to a certain extent. So if you look at the founding era, um, plea bargaining was virtually unknown. And so there was much more involvement um, on the part of citizen juries, much more involvement on the part of judges. Um, the grand jury actually meant something back at the founding era. In other words, it could actually serve as a real um, uh, kind of a limit and a, a, an oversight mechanism to ensure that unjust prosecutions did not proceed. Um, that's all changed. It, and I would say that where it really started picking up speed was, was kind of after World War II, um, as we began this era of mass incarceration, what we needed was a more and more efficient way to convert people from citizens to suspects to convicts. And that's essentially what our, our criminal justice system does today is, is to um, achieve very high numbers of convictions with very low commitment of resources. All right. Uh, we have some questions here from sponsors. Uh, Roger Barris asks, following the recent Cato podcast on prosecutors' fallibility, what would you recommend to address the issue? I think the first and most important thing we can do 
would be to, um, uh, well, thank you for that question. I think what we really need to do is to end our policy of zero accountability for prosecutors. Uh, that unfortunately sounds like an exaggeration. It's not an exaggeration. We have effectively a zero accountability for prosecutors. So if prosecutors get caught uh, engaged in misconduct, which is hard to do in the first place, but um, there's a raging debate right now in, in uh, legal circles about how often prosecutors uh, violate their ethical and constitutional obligations towards defendants. Um, one of the most important ones is that they have an absolute duty to uh, disclose potentially exculpatory evidence to a defendant. Um, that's called their Brady obligation. Uh, there are some, including a Ninth Circuit judge, libertarian Ninth Circuit judge, Alex Kaczynski, who think that there is um, an epidemic of Brady violations. Um, we don't know for sure whether that's true, but what we do know is that when prosecutors get caught uh, violating their ethical obligations toward defendants, they face zero or at least near zero accountability. That has got to change. Uh, there was, I'm, I'm re reminded of the Duke rape yep. case. Uh, Michael Nifong, who I think suffered the worst consequences of any prosecutor in recent memory yep. for those kinds of violations. And he's, he lost his he was disbarred. Lost his law and, license. And he spent and one night in jail? It was either one or two nights in jail. I think it was one. Um, so, and, and keep in mind, this was unbelievably unethical behavior on his part. He kept prosecuting these young men well past the point when it was clear that they were innocent and that he himself was in possession of exonerating evidence that he did not initially disclose to the defense. So when you have a prosecutor who misbehaves about as badly as they can, there's another example, a judge, um, former prosecutor is then a judge named Ken Anderson in Texas. His Brady violations and his deliberate failure to comply with court orders resulted in an innocent man going to jail for 25 years um, when his wife was murdered. Not by him, it turns out, but he was convicted of that. This prosecutor in Texas um, made repeated ethical violations that would have probably led to the man's exoneration, but an innocent man went to jail for 25 years. That prosecutor spent five days in jail as a result of that misconduct. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about near zero accountability. You can bet that if somebody else who wasn't a prosecutor engaged in similar misconduct with similar consequences, they'd get punished a lot more harshly. All right. Uh, thank you for that question, Roger. From Mark J. Victor, uh, he says, uh, there is no way to reform the criminal justice system until the drug war ends. In addition, we need to abolish mandatory minimum sentences as they deprive people of jury trials. Also, we need jury nullification. Finally, nothing can truly be fixed until we convince people to respect the NAP. I assume he means a non-aggression principle in all matters. Well, thanks, Mark. I couldn't agree more with that. That's a, a remarkably eloquent and concise summary of, of I would say, many of the, of the most fundamental problems in our system. And I'd like to walk through those very quickly. First and foremost, we have a situation where the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively taken the position that it is not a big deal to put a human being in a cage. How do we know that's the Supreme Court's position? Because it doesn't require the government to have a good reason for criminalizing various kinds of conduct. You prefer this intoxicant, somebody else prefers that. That one, the government doesn't have to have a good reason for making one uh, a crime and, and the other one not. And so we do start with that. Uh, the drug war is very much um, an outgrowth of this judicial indifference um, to the basic constitutional principle that the government should not be able to incarcerate people, should not be able to initiate force against people who are behaving peacefully and non-wrongfully. That's the most fundamental mistake, I think, that, that is made in our criminal justice system. And the problems that flow from there are myriad. And you put your hand um, or your finger on a number of them, and I would just pick one. And that is when you criminalize conduct that large numbers of innocent, peaceful, 
good people want to engage in, um, you're going to have, by definition, a lot of crime. And for the government to maintain its credibility, it's going to have to put a lot of those people in prison. How do we do that? We do that by uh, streamlining our criminal justice system, by effectively eliminating the criminal jury, because that's not a very efficient way to put people in prison. And we use mandatory minimums and other coercive tools to essentially achieve very high levels of plea bargaining. Um, just to take one fact, a random fact, not random, 97% of federal criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain, not a jury conviction, but a plea bargain. And in the states, it's 95 or 96%. As I said, we've effectively eliminated the criminal jury trial from our system. Uh, to what extent, uh, and we're going to get back to, we have a couple more questions in the queue here. To what extent do prosecutors, because they know that they have this enormous leverage and therefore can reasonably expect, very reasonably expect that anybody who's been accused of anything will not choose to opt for a jury trial for reasons you're welcome to get into. Does that lead them to not prepare very much for uh, dealing with the actual substance of the crime and dealing with a maybe a curious defense attorney who's willing to take them to task? Right. I, I don't know for sure. Um, I think prosecutors prepare however much they need to. But a very powerful tool that prosecutors have is the ability to initiate plea bargain negotiations before they have disclosed uh, uh, exculpatory evidence to the defense. In other words, the defendant who is engaged in these early stage plea negotiations has to guess at what cards are in the prosecutor's hands, how powerful the prosecutor's case is, etc. That's one of many, many tools that the prosecutor has to make sure that the playing field is perpetually unequal and to maximize the coercive nature of the plea bargain process. And you bet they, they use those tools to maximum effect. So plea offers go onto the table and then are removed from the table before the defense team might actually learn what uh, where the holes are in the prosecution's case? Absolutely. That's not mandated, but that's a very effective uh, bargaining technique. If, if, uh, if you want to call it bargaining, I'm not sure that's the right word for it. Um, but yes, there's no limit whatsoever on the prosecutor's ability uh, to um, strategically or to, to, to behave tactically in these situations by withholding evidence in order to try to maximize the coercive nature of the plea bargaining process. And that happens all the time. All right. We have a question here from American Dream. Thank you. Uh, is there a specific state uh, that you would say is leading the way on criminal justice reform? And if so, what elements of that reform success should other states attempt to emulate? And I think it's worth uh, stressing this when we talk about uh, people who are in prison uh, for crimes, the states dwarf right. uh, the federal inmates. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you for that question. Um, so first point to emphasize what Caleb just said, um, the, the federal system tends to generate a lot of attention um, because it's frequently in the news and it just tends to be where we focus our attention. But Caleb's right. The vast majority of arrests and convictions and the vast majority of people who are locked up um, are there as a virtue of state proceedings, not the federal, uh, not, not by violating federal law. So that's the most important place to look is in the states. Um, I wouldn't say there's any one single state or any one single reform that has emerged as the most important right now, but there are a handful of states that have managed to do two things at once that it's extremely important. They have both reduced the, the um, amount of people that they have locked up. They've reduced their incarceration levels at the same time that they have reduced the amount of crime. And so that shows that this can be done, that mass incarceration doesn't have to be part of the formula for reducing crime. Um, those states include South Carolina, Texas, 
um, and I believe even Florida um, has uh, been making progress in this area. So um, that's probably the single most important thing to focus on is the recognition that we can reduce levels of crime um, while also reducing the number of people that we have locked up. How we get from here to there will vary by state um, and the mix of policies is not set in stone, but we do know that it can be done and so every state should be experimenting with how to get there. Uh, turning to civil asset forfeiture, this has been an issue for the Cato Institute since the 1980s. I remember yep. Henry Hyde uh, actually wrote a book for the Cato Institute on uh, civil asset forfeiture. This is uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, discussing the topic. In July, the department reinstituted the federal forfeiture and adoptive program, adoptive forfeiture. That is, I mean, I love that program. We had so much fun doing that, taking drug dealers' money and <laughs> passing it out to people trying to put drug dealers in jail. What's wrong with that? I mean, uh, well, you know, they don't like it. I'm amazed these people don't get it. All right, in there he's joking about how this policy is very good, uh, a good approach for law enforcement. And this is from uh, Rod Rosenstein. He is uh, Deputy U.S. Attorney General. He says, thanks to civil asset forfeiture, the Department of Justice is announcing record-setting distribution of, re of restitution to victims of Bernard Madoff's notorious investment fraud scheme. Uh, we've recovered $3.9 billion from third parties, not Mr. Madoff and are now returning that money to more than 35,000 victims. This is the largest restoration of forfeited property in history. Civil forfeiture has allowed the government to seize those illicit proceeds and return them to Mr. Madoff's victims. So how would eliminating civil asset forfeiture interfere with uh, what uh, Mr. Rosenstein, de Deputy U.S. Attorney uh, General, uh, is talking about. Yeah, so the, unfortunately, the Rosenstein piece creates this impression that most uh, federal forfeitures um, involve large amounts of money from swindlers like Bernie Madoff or um, you know criminals who abscond to another jurisdiction and, and there's no way to prosecute them, so the only way to get their property um, is through... Uh, civil forfeiture. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Most civil forfeitures are relatively low amounts uh, from ordinary uh, people, some of whom are criminals, but some of whom are not. The median amount of a federal forfeiture is $9,000. This is not Bernie Madoff. This is not Russian oligarchs um, or, or rich you know, uh, Colombian drug dealers. It's just ordinary people. The um, problem with civil forfeiture is it combines three uh, really serious problems in our criminal justice system. Perverse incentives, terrible procedures, and zero accountability for the people who wield this power. And it adds up to abuse after abuse after abuse. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that people like Rod Rosenstein are in deep denial, uh, both about the, um, the problematic nature of the policy itself and also the, the, just the sheer quantity of dem demonstrable abuses uh, that it creates. All right. Um, related to that, uh, you say civil forfeiture. Yep. And um, more commonly, the phrase is civil asset forfeiture. So we're talking to sponsors here. These yeah. are the people who get Cato. Uh, on a on a much at a much deeper level than most yeah. people do, make the case to them for why we should stop using this phrase "civil asset forfeiture" and instead use the phrase "civil forfeiture." 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And I am a bit of an evangelist on this. Let me please try to convince you, don't call it civil asset forfeiture. And I can illustrate it in one point. Um, the Institute for Justice, where I used to work, uh, has a class action lawsuit going against the city of Philadelphia for its forfeiture procedures. Uh, the median amount of a uh, cash forfeiture in Philadelphia is $178. In Washington, D.C., there was another uh, lawsuit that was brought by the ACLU some years ago, and they documented that the median amount of a cash forfeiture in Washington, D.C. was $120. That's not an asset. That's pocket money. Um, and other items that are frequently forfeited uh, through civil forfeiture include uh, people's vehicles. So this is a car that they might use to take their kids to school or to get to work. That's not an asset. That's their family vehicle. So I don't like to use the word asset because it buys into this uh, idea that government tries to perpetuate that these are bad people and it's not their property that we're taking. It's the assets that they've uh, uh, you know, uh, managed to, to derive from criminal activity. That presumes the conclusion. It's one thing to assert that property was involved in a crime, but you should actually have to prove it. And of course, that's the whole point with civil forfeiture. You don't have to prove it. You just assert it. And vast majority of time, almost always, the um, cases are settled. The people don't try to contest the forfeiture, not necessarily because they're guilty, but because it's extremely uh, complicated and expensive to contest a forfeiture. All right. Uh, a question now from Friend of Liberty. Uh, what is the most pervasive myth uh, challenging the forward movement of criminal justice reform? That's a great question. Uh, so let me reflect on that for a moment. I think probably uh, I would I would for me it comes down to a couple of things. The first is that our legislatures are careful and thoughtful in going about uh, uh, developing criminal law. Nothing could be further from the truth. I hate to say it, but legislatures are uh, often quite cavalier uh, about criminalizing various kinds of conduct. The judiciary has taken a completely or almost completely hands-off approach in terms of um, they'll just rubber stamp essentially anything that the government wants to criminalize. So the result is that we criminalize vast uh, amount, a vast amount of um, a perfectly innocent, non-rights invading uh, conduct, um, including uh, drugs, but not only. And I would say that the second uh, myth is that we have a system of rigorous and fair procedures to ensure that people who are accused of a crime are not convicted unless they've gone through a process that is uh, rigorously fair. Unfortunately, that's not true either. What we've got instead is what amounts to a conviction machine. We have an extremely coercive process uh, whereby uh, you can be charged with violating the law when you didn't do anything particularly wrong, certainly not morally wrong. You may be facing an extremely draconian penalty or a mandatory minimum that the prosecutor can then use to coerce you into uh, pleading guilty, um, even to a crime that you did not commit. And I think the process itself adds up to an unconstitutionally fair one and is certainly not uh, the, the system that we mythologize to our school children and that you would think is our system if you just read what's written in the Constitution. We have a much different system and a much more coercive system. All right. Thank you for that. That question. Another question from Freedom Fan. What role can the private sector play in criminal justice reform? In the context of uh, regulation, yeah. uh, I spoke a while back with Charles Murray, who suggested the creation of something like a Madison, what he called a Madison Fund mm -hmm. that would essentially entangle the federal government in very expensive lawyers for trying to bring the hammer down on people for violating uh, stupid regulation. Right. Uh, and I know you, you and I have discussed, at least privately, right. uh, a similar idea that, that might give prosecutors pause in 
handling cases in a certain way? Right. Um, so it's a it's a great question. I want to answer it in two parts. Um, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that the um, you know the the administration of criminal justice is a core government function. Um, you don't get a criminal proceeding until the government initiates it, and so this will be inherently a you know a government created problem, and the government will have to be um, inevitably kind of a part of the solution. In terms of where private industry might come into it, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all. There are a number of, of programs, a number of kind of pilot programs that have been undertaken that it try to kind of harness some of the dynamics and incentives of the free market to achieve better results. Let me just um, identify a couple. Um, there is a jurisdiction in West Texas where instead of having a public defender service, uh, they have what amounts to a voucher uh, for indigent defense. So the, uh, the defendant gets essentially a voucher and they get to go out and hire their own lawyer as opposed to having someone assigned to them. Um, it's unclear whether this has resulted in, in more efficacious representation, but the satisfaction levels have been higher. And so that's a program that should continue. Another one I think is very promising is tying the amount of funding that a prison gets to recidivism rates. In other words, um, the, the better a prisoner from that prison does when they are released, the more money the prison gets per prisoner. So you tie the incentive, the financial incentive, um, to ensuring that people don't go out and commit new crimes. Um, I think that's another example of harnessing free market forces uh, to achieve better outcomes. In terms of what the private sector could do, one area that really cries out is, is one I just um, mentioned in passing, and that is ensuring that the playing field in terms of how much we, how many resources are available um, between criminal defendants on the one hand and prosecutors on the other is more level. Virtually every jurisdiction in the country spends more money on prosecutors than they do on criminal defend, uh, on public defenders to defend uh, accused criminals. That playing field needs to be leveled. Whether there's a role for private industry, for private charity in that uh, space, is, I'm, I'm not certain about that. I do know that the playing field is persistently on level between criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors, and it needs to be leveled. Now, when you mention uh, funding of uh, criminal defense versus prosecutors, uh, when uh, and you also mentioned that at the federal level, ninety-seven percent, uh, or you know, a vast majority yeah. of of uh, criminal cases end in a plea bargain. Um, what is it at the state level? Do right. we have Do we have a sense of what that percentage is at the state level? It's not far from that. So okay. uh, it varies by state, but about ninety-five or ninety-six percent of state criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain. So when I when I, the reason I bring that back up is that if you've already uh, relative have prosecutors relatively well funded right. and defense relatively not that well funded, yep. and you also have a ninety percent rate of uh, a case a case ending in a plea bargain. Well, it, it seems that 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 further tips the the playing field in the sense that those prosecutorial resources don't have to go. Right. Uh, as far in, right. the, in those 97 percent of cases. No, that's a great point. And that's yet another tool that prosecutors have uh, that enables them to make plea bargaining a fundamentally coercive process. Namely, they can they can marshal their resources so they can bring a ton of resources to bear on that small handful uh, of criminal defendants who insist upon what my Cato colleague Trevor Burris felicitously calls 
bespoke justice, right? You're that one criminal defendant who presumes to insist upon a criminal jury instead of taking a plea, which is what you're expected to do, and they can bring the whole might of the government to bear on those one or two defendants that insist on going the full distance with a criminal jury trial, and you better believe they do. Um, you're right. That is another way in which the resources are unequal. Um, prosecutors, of course, have another uh, uh, tool at their disposal, which is they can always decide what terms to offer, right? So if they're getting too busy or if they need to free up some time to have a big uh, jury trial, they can just make more favorable plea offers to some of the other uh, defendants. There's no review of that, no accountability, or at least no meaningful review or accountability. So prosecutors have an almost unlimited ability to free up time when they need to devote that time to hammering down the one nail that decides to stick up above the others. Again, that one criminal defendant who insists upon a trial um, really feels the weight of the world on their shoulders when the prosecutors respond. All right. Uh, this is a question, for, uh, follow-up question from uh, Roger Barris. He's asking for a little more specificity here on holding prosecutors accountable for Brady yep. and other violations. What would that look like? Uh, should victims be allowed to initiate criminal or civil actions against them? It seems that if the accountability is left up to the criminal justice system itself, nothing will happen. I think it's exactly right, Roger. Thanks again for that follow-up. Uh, what I would say is this. The first and most important thing we have to do is eliminate a, a something called absolute prosecutorial immunity, which is exactly what it sounds like. The Supreme Court invented this doctrine out of whole cloth, literally just made it up out of thin air and said that prosecutors may not be sued when they violate people's rights. And believe it or not, that doctrine was announced in a case where the prosecutors had knowingly prosecuted an innocent person, introduced perjured testimony in order to secure an unjust conviction, and after many years, the defendant was finally exonerated, attempted to sue the prosecutors who engaged in this blatant and deliberate misconduct, and the Supreme Court said, no, no, we, we could never allow criminal defendants to sue prosecutors because then uh, people wouldn't want to become prosecutors and they would just be, they would be distracted and spend all of their time defending these civil lawsuits. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we are going to be introducing proposed legislation here at Cato that, that will eliminate prosecutorial immunity in cases where there's been a judicial finding of a willful Brady violation, in other words, a willful failure to produce exculpatory evidence that has resulted in either an acquittal or a reversal of a conviction. There is absolutely no reason why somebody who engages in that kind of misconduct should be immune from civil lawsuit, uh, which can be one of the most effective tools for accountability that we can have. And the Supreme Court, as I said before, took it upon itself to completely eliminate this valuable tool of accountability, and it needs to be restored. Um, another question here. Uh, this is from me. Uh, a few years ago, it seemed like there was a lot more support for bipartisan criminal justice reform. This was before uh, our current president. Um, uh, and this is a clip from 2014. This is Senator Cory Booker and Senator Rand Paul of, I believe, New Jersey and Kentucky, respectively, uh, making that point. This is a, a large stretch. I, I joined the Senate at the time that Senator Rand Paul, Senator Leahy, Senator Durbin, Senator Mike Lee were doing a lot of things to try to change the system, and I'm happy to join uh, this broad-based effort on this urgent need in America. Senator Paul, you come from a very different political worldview uh, than, than Senator Booker, but you see this the same way he does? Well, I think the interesting thing is I don't think it's a right or a left issue. I think it's an issue that we both believe strongly in. I think it's the number one impediment or one of the chief 
chief impediments to unemployment. People can't get a job because they have to check off a box saying they're a felon. There are five million people who have lost the right to vote. There's also five million people who are out of jail who have con been convicted of felonies that I think it's denying them an opportunity to get a job. So I want people to work. I want people to get back to work. I want them to get back to voting. And all of these things, I think, are wrapped up in stuff that really both parties can believe and at least some people from both parties do believe in. So here's a Republican from Kentucky uh, and a Democrat from New Jersey. They seem to be on the same page. And yet, I believe it was sort of late last year, it seemed pretty clear that uh, criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, the, the whole issue wasn't really going to go anywhere at the at the federal level. Where does that stand now and what what might be on Congress's radar? So there's really good news here, believe it or not. I, I really think we're just in a kind of a lull uh, for reasons that I'm sure people understand very well. Namely, we have an attorney general uh, who doesn't think there are any really significant problems in criminal justice, except maybe we aren't putting enough people away. Um, he's wrong about that and he's in the distinct minority. Uh, criminal justice reform is one of the most bipartisan issues that there is um, and there are two things that are important about it. First of all, we're right and second of all, we're in the majority. And so um, there is still progress being made. Um, take civil forfeiture. While there is not much good going on at the federal level, most civil forfeiture occurs in the states and there's tremendous uh, good news in the states. Uh, 14 states in just in the last few years have either eliminated or nearly entirely eliminated civil forfeiture. That's exactly the right direction that they should be moving in. And other states, as I mentioned before, Texas, South Carolina, others uh, have managed to reduce prison populations and crime at the same time. So the trends are encouraging. Um, there's a recognition that there's a problem here that needs to be addressed. There's some good creative ideas for how to do that and there's real commitment to following through. Where Cato can play a unique role, I think, is in helping ensure that people on the right and the left don't talk past each other the way they have been by identifying the most fundamental and the most indisputable problems in our criminal justice system and helping people of goodwill on the right and the left find common ground and, and agree on the problems so that they can then turn to the solutions. So yes, we are um, not moving as quickly as we'd like to, particularly at the federal level, but the trends are all moving, I think, in the right direction. Okay. Related question here from Cato's Letters. Thank you very much. How likely is it that a civil forfeiture case will make it to the Supreme Court? And explain how cases get to the Supreme right. Court uh, and how... Uh, how likely or unlikely that actually is? Yeah, so this is tricky to assess. Uh, there is strong interest on the part of at least some justices on the Supreme Court to take a fresh look at civil forfeiture. In fact, Justice Thomas, uh, just within the past few months, had a very passionate dissent from a denial of a petition for certiorari, which is the mechanism you use to ask the Supreme Court to take a case for review. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a couple of pages about how he has real concerns about the constitutionality of civil forfeiture, and he's right to be concerned about it because I think at least the way it's um, typically used today, it is unconstitutional. Um, trying to assess what the odds are of the Supreme Court taking up this issue is very tricky and there's a real interesting twist here that doesn't uh, come up in other cases or doesn't come up in that many cases and it's this. The government has the ability to moot, which, is, which means to end any given forfeiture case through a very simple mechanism, which is what? To just give back the property. And this actually happened the last time a civil forfeiture case got to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a few years ago in a case called Alvarez. 
uh, out of Illinois where the Chicago Police Department was, was basically what they had a policy where if they did a drug bust in a given neighborhood, they would just take virtually every car within sight. And they had a terrible process where they would not let, uh, give the, uh, the car owners a hearing in, in front of a judge for over a year. And this was challenged. Um, the Seventh U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals struck it down as unconstitutional. It went to the Supreme Court. And when things were looked like they were going bad for the government, it decided to moot the case um, by giving back all of the cars. And that brought the case to an end and prevented the Supreme Court from issuing a ruling on the merits in a forfeiture case. My concern is that the next time somebody gets a really good case up to the U.S. Supreme Court, there's nothing to prevent the government from doing that again. Um, there are tactics that can be used, like trying to construct, you know, set the thing up as a class action, uh, which the Institute for Justice and others have tried to do. Whether those will be successful, I don't know. So short version, very strong interest on the part of the Supreme Court, or at least some justices. We know that. Unfortunately, significant opportunities for gamesmanship on the part of the government that we've actually seen in the past. Police misconduct mm -hmm. is a part of this, yep. and it is because they are sort of the front lines of, of the criminal justice system. It seems that every case that we see of uh, quite often a black man who is killed by a typically white police officer, sometimes for selling loose cigarettes on the street, mm -hmm. sometimes pulled over for a, a broken taillight, not really understanding uh, any uh, some cr criminal issues that may or may not be facing him if a police officer does – uh, get up, catch up with him, right. who was shot in the back yep. for running away, yep. who was by all accounts unarmed. Right. There are this case after case after case like this, and it seems that there is a very broad willingness in America to uh, reflexively defend the police and the job that they do no matter what. Yep. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like even strict obedience in the face of a, a police officer barking orders at you is, is, is somehow uh, is insufficient to prevent you from being killed. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, exactly right. And unfortunately, I think to a certain extent, uh, maybe there's an unconscious recognition that we have some of this blood on our own hands. And why do I say that? We are constantly throwing police officers and citizens together under very fraught and potentially dangerous circumstances um, when there's literally nothing at stake for society. We're sending police officers off to serve warrants on people for selling marijuana out of their house, which they typically do in a very violent fashion with a SWAT team. Why do they do that? Not necessarily because they're violent people or they get off on it, although unfortunately it seems that some do, but for their own safety. They believe that it's safer for them to, to essentially, uh, if they have to enter a, a house where they believe drug dealing has occurred, um, they want to do it in force. And that's on us if we allow those laws to remain on the books. There's nothing at stake for society. There's no reason why it should be a crime to, to consume or sell marijuana, but we enforce those laws anyway. More than half of all arrests in 2015 were for drug crimes. Even though it is not the case that most people in jail are there for drug crimes, most people are actually in, in the state system, they're there for violent crimes. But more than half of all arrests are for drug crimes. Think about what that means. We're putting police officers in violent contact with citizens for no good reason. And it is a dangerous job. It's not one of the most dangerous jobs. It's not even in the top 10. But I personally wouldn't want to have to make a traffic stop in the middle of the night of a stranger who doesn't necessarily want to be detained. Because guess what? Some people do fight back. Uh, why on earth are we constantly putting police in, in that situation 
Instead of saying, look, the only time you should be in violent confrontation with a citizen is when there's something really at stake for society and that person might actually have hurt somebody. That is the most fundamental change we need to make to the system in my opinion. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is a question from Dave Hood and this may be our last question unless you want to plug some more into the, the chat room there. Uh, any thoughts about the current administration's ability or willingness to change the outlook of the courts, especially the Supreme Court? Thank you for that question, Dave. That's a great question and I, I do appreciate it. Uh, so I would say that there is some tension uh, and the, the signs point in different directions. The most positive sign uh, was the appointment of uh, Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Justice Gorsuch has uh, in his career as a lower court judge shown genuine concern about problems with our criminal justice system and a genuinely independent streak um, in terms of his of his thinking and his jurisprudence. That's extremely important and I hope that it means he'll be open to listening, um, to genuinely listening to uh, some of the problems that are brought to his attention. Um, if you remember Merrick Garland, who is President Obama's uh, nominee, failed nominee, um, um, Judge Garland as a judge on the DC Circuit uh, was one of the most pro-law enforcement, he's a former prosecutor, he's one of the most pro-law enforcement judges on the DC Circuit. So. On this particular issue, I think it was um, very positive that we ended up with Justice Gorsuch instead of uh, a potential Justice Garland. On the other hand, if you look at some of the lower court judges that the Trump administration is, is nominating to the federal courts, I'd say it's more of an even split between kind of standard law and order types and your more sort of um, open-minded people like, for example, uh, Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett, whose hearing will be on Wednesday morning to be appointed to the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Justice Willett is among the uh, state court judges who have expressed strong concern about civil forfeiture, for example. And so uh, another, that's another example of somebody with an open and independent mindset on these issues. Uh, but as I said, I think the signs are split among the lower court judges. Some are very traditional law and order types. Some of them are of a more um, independent mindset where we might actually be able to make some progress on criminal justice. Okay. One last question. This is from uh, Roger Barris again. A third question. Probably That's probably a record, uh, Roger, but uh, thank you for it. Uh, nonetheless, should the role of juries be reduced in line with many other countries and should the election of judges be eliminated? So as to the second question, should we stop electing judges, I th I'm generally in favor of that. I think the judges tend to respond um, in a very negative way to the very obvious public choice issues. Um, when you, if you look at how judges run for re-election, more often than not, they run on a tough on crime um, platform and, and that's how they get elected, so by being tough on criminals, by handing out harsh sentences. So I'm not a fan of judicial elections. As to the, the previous point, no, we should absolutely not reduce. I mean, if we were to reduce the role of juries any further in our criminal justice system, we would literally eliminate them because it's, it's been reduced almost as much as you can without actually eliminating it. I think there are a few things that are more important than meaningful civil, uh, civilian or citizen participation in the criminal justice system for a number of reasons, including jury nullification, which was mentioned earlier. That really means just jurors who refuse to convict people, even though those people are demonstrably guilty of the crime charged um, because they feel that convicting would be unjust. That is exactly the kind of information that prosecutors are supposed to get from their fellow citizens in the form of, of, of citizen juries and are not getting because very few cases actually go to trial anymore. That's really just the tip of the iceberg, but there's a reason why our criminal justice system was designed around the, the, the role of citizen juries, and I think there's a very reason why efficiency-minded government officials, including but 
not limited to prosecutors, uh, have essentially removed the criminal jury from our criminal justice system. Um, it's an impediment to this kind of mass incarceration or this mass conviction approach that we've taken to criminal justice. I can't think of any reforms that I think are more important than restoring the rightful role of the citizen uh, jury to our system. I think we provide a lot of useful information for government officials. All right. We're going to leave it there. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you to Clark for uh, joining me here today. Thank you to the staff uh, here at the Cato Institute for making this event happen. Uh, before we do sign off, uh, we would like to share with you a video we put together uh, on the 40, for our 40th anniversary, uh, sharing throughout the year that tells the story of Cato's impact uh, over the past 40 years. Uh, please enjoy. We, we look forward to hosting you again down the road. Thank you again for your support. It makes our work promoting free markets, limited government, individual liberty, and peace possible. We'll talk to you again next time.